Welcome to the debate from Newsweek. I'm Andrew Tallman, and today we're going to be talking about the Fox Dominion lawsuit. What's defamation and do news organizations, uh, well, you know, what do news organizations have an obligation to say about their own reporting? Arizona Christian University and the dust up with the Washington Elementary School District in Arizona and safety for LGBTQ kids in the classroom and child labor laws as Sarah Huckabee Sanders offers maybe to make things easier for kids to work in Arkansas. Joining us today, we have Rakeem Brooks. He is the president of the Alliance for Justice Action Campaign. Rakeem, welcome back to the debate. Hey, thanks for having me again. Great to have you. And Ari Hoffman, the host of the Ari Hoffman Show on Talk Radio 570 KVI in Seattle. Ari, welcome back. Great to be here. Thank you. So, holy smokes, <laughs> the data dump on these texts and uh, communiques over at Fox in the, well, the run up on the Tuesday night of the election and then the follow up aftermath uh, of that. Uh, I mean, it really is uh, amazing stuff, quite frankly. You know, we've got an article at Newsweek. It's got a really good summary of things, including Tucker Carlson's concerns about what Trump could do to their network if uh, they get him on the wrong side of them. The call on Tuesday night that, uh, you know, that got Fox in trouble and people were angry that they made the call so early. Disagreements between some of the on-air commentators and, you know, what was being reported by some of the fact-checking reporters and a whole host of other things, including the central claim that several people at Fox either knew or doubted, either knew they were false or doubted the election stealing claims, and yet continued perpetuating that narrative because of a fear that they might lose audience share over that question. Let's start with you, um, Ari. What did you hear? What do you see? What do you think of the revelation with these communiques? We're surprised that people on primetime were saying things for audience share points. I mean, MSNBC and CNN have been doing it for years. I don't know why anybody's surprised. Last time I checked, I have a whole montage that I play all the time of everybody talking about how Donald Trump stole the 2016 election. And we heard that nonstop. And I don't remember anybody ever fact checking anybody over at CNN or anybody over at MSNBC. We still hear people say that Hillary Clinton said it just recently. Do I think it's honest? No. Do I think it's right? No. Do I think they should have done it? No. Did I do it on my show? Absolutely not. Never, ever did that. I said, hey, you know what the problem is by them talking about all the voting machines and everything else? This is my favorite. In Washington state, we don't use the Dominion voting machines. And people were saying here in Washington state, they're using the Dominion voting machines. (laughs) You took away from things that were actually a problem. Like, for example, in Wisconsin, there were shenanigans to keep the Green Party off the ballot. And last time around, the Green Party took away a lot of votes from the Democrat ticket and as a result may have swung that state. That was never discussed. There were some other things that were discrepancies, but unfortunately, those things were never investigated because Team Trump was busy trying to figure out what Internet conspiracy theory we could go after next. It was all done in court. So unfortunately, was primetime playing into this? Yes. Should they have been doing it? No. But I know that my conscience is clear because I was never one of the people doing it. Rakeem, your thoughts on the, uh, well, all of the things that we're seeing uh, from Fox over this? I was going to say, all right, that was fascinating. I wanted to see just how far we would go away from the main topic, which is that on-air hosts who people believe are telling them the truth, they're actually lying routinely about what they actually believe and don't seem to be upholding their standards as journalists. I very much appreciate that you yourself are not spreading in these lies. And there may very well be other conspiracy theories that are spread by other parties, but just focusing here for a moment. I think what's most galling about this entire situation is the lies go to the heart of our democracy. They go to whether or not our elections are fair and have integrity, and we see that declining by the day. And so for people who hold the public trust to gradually be dragging that through the mud knowingly for profit, um, maybe it shouldn't surprise us. I probably agree with Ari on, on that. But at the end of the day, I think it's a sad state of affairs. And I'm glad that this lawsuit was brought and the Dominion really um, is defending itself. Not only that, but potentially defending the First Amendment. The rule we have from New York Times versus Sullivan seems to me to just be far too expansive. You have to either have knowledge or have reckless disregard. Now, in this case, it does seem like it was <laughs> reckless disregard for the truth. So the standard may hold. But I think it's worth reevaluating at this point, particularly if the scale of the damages that Dominion alleges are um, actually realized. They did real harm to a real company that was providing a public good and they shouldn't get away with it. Do you think there's any 
distinction to be made about, for example, what Fox publishes on its website, which uh, is generally, I, I would say, is more neutral news. It's not neutral, but it's it's more in that direction. And what let you know, and what say like a Brett Bear might do on special report, you know, as opposed to what commentators. I mean, the the you know the nightly lineup is not really news so much as news ish with commentary. Is there any distinction to be made there that matters much for this conversation, Ari? Well, I mean, look at Don Lemon. He's over at the mornings now. So are we going to say the mornings are now all of a sudden reliable over at CNN? Look at the mess he got himself into last week. I mean, we still have people out there pushing false narratives about the vaccine. We had a whole bunch of people saying the vaccine stopped the spread here in Washington State. Governor Jay Inslee was saying it stopped the spread, even though he had information in his hand from his own health department and health departments across Washington state saying that it's, that it didn't stop infection. He still went out there and told everybody that it did. And he did that nonstop. I think we have a real problem in this country. We're on both sides of the aisle. Everybody's pushing what goes with their narrative and leaving out anything else in terms of journalistic integrity. And, and, and that's, and that's the point that have, of news, right? The point of news is right. to not be that right. Right. I mean, that's the thing. It should be. Here's your here's your news. The thing I love about working with you guys over at Newsweek is you guys have very clearly your opinion section and you have very clearly your news section and everything else. It's one of the things I love writing for you guys and working with you guys because you say this is opinion. You don't have to agree with this person. This is opinion. And unfortunately, primetime on every single network is opinion for the most part on every single network. And people say, well, it's journalism. Yes, there are journalistic stories. But my show, for example, are there stories I break that nobody else has? Absolutely. Is most of my show opinion? 100 percent. I call myself an opinion guy, not a journalist. Yeah. Rakeem, what do you think? Is that I mean, do you think the primetime folks on Fox or MSNBC or CNN, anywhere like this, were any educated viewer recognizes that they're not straight line journalists. They're not straight line news reporters. Is that any kind of a defense for shading a presentation of the information in a way that, you know, the audience is going to prefer? I mean, is that even a relevant distinction here? You know, I'm, I want to try to give some credence to the argument that someone who's presenting information for entertainment's value, even if it's news kind of information should probably be protected under the First Amendment. Uh, this was the debate that we used to have over, you know, John Stewart. He was going over real yeah. information, but he was doing it with such caricatures that one could be led to believe that some things weren't true or, um, you know, the the substance of the news was not actually being communicated. So if that's the case, you know, can fine. I pause you? That's just a, such a great point. <laughs> if the yeah. audience can't tell where the uh, reporting ends and the satire begins, that's its own interesting problem. Great observation. Go ahead. Yeah. And, and I think that's sort of where I'd like to draw down the marker. But the thing that I don't want to lose sight of um, and keep drawing us back to is that a company was actually harmed in the process of the distribution of this news. And I think the question that we're really confronting is whether or not whether or not it's opinion or whether or not it's news. What are the standards in our society for spreading false information, knowingly false information, not just I think something about a set of facts that might be construed in any number of ways? To me, that's the heart of opinion. There's some facts and you could read them in a number of different ways. But no, not actually that. I'm actually creating a mythology, calling it facts and harming someone in the process of doing so. Uh, that's a really dangerous thing in any society. It's not just and it's not unique to America. But that's what we're confronting at this particular moment. So, again, I think the size of the liability that Fox is facing suggests the size of the lie and the sort of distribution of that lie over time. Uh, and, you know, I hope they've got some good defenses for it, because other than that, they're going to be short a few bottles and bucks. Yeah, we're going to I want to get to the, um, you know, whether they can be demonstrated to have apps, you know, actual malice, negligence, that kind of stuff in a minute. But I want to I kind of get back to something you said uh, in your early comment, Ari, you were saying, well, look, you know, we know this is true in a lot of different places, a lot of different uh, news ish networks do things this way and we know there's a lot of inconsistency over which claims get challenged which things get fact check uh, which defamation cases are brought i kind of thought i heard you saying that and therefore it's you did say it was bad but maybe not as bad as we would otherwise say because everybody's doing it i hope you would agree that if cnn does it and msnbc does it and fox does it well, they're all wrong for doing it. If you're saying oh, things on the yeah. air that you either suspect to be false or know to be false, and you're still telling a narrative to get ratings, that's bad, right? Oh, I'm completely agreeing with you. Okay, on that one. cool. Of course, cool. it's bad. I don't think I don't think that's what I was saying. I think I was saying is that unfortunately, this is the standard. 
The standard we're looking at now is this. And if we're talking about false information, disinformation, think of the tens of thousands of people that got fired across the country because of these vaccine mandates that were told they're going to stop the spread right here in Washington. You're talking about thousands of people. I believe the last count was 7,000 people here in Washington lost their livelihoods. So what compensation is due to them when they were pushing a false narrative? We know they were pushing a false narrative. I think that's a lot worse than what happened to Dominion. I think Dominion, if this is all proven and whatever it is, should also be compensated. But at the same time, we're talking about the exact same thing. And we either have one standard or we have no standards at all. Unfortunately, when we're talking about entertainment, you know, it's not like it's Walter Cronkite anymore, where he is the most trusted name in news or whatever the case may be. We don't have that anymore. Well, we, have, we still have Ari Hoffman, though, though, right? Uh, absolutely. Okay, just, I mean, just you know, my show, above board, everything, <laughs> you know, I do interviews with Emperor Palpatine and say he's certain politicians. 100% accurate. But I'm saying is that when we have what we have now, we can go on any random website and say, this is where I get my news from. You're going to find what fits your narrative. And unfortunately, the other thing we see in journalism is newsjacking, where somebody sees a story they like, and then they put it in their own words, or they all grab it from the AP. And I've caught the AP being wrong so many times I can't even count, so many times on actual facts. And yet this stuff gets picked up by whoever subscribes to AP's newswires and pushes it out there. Unfortunately, the fact checkers aren't doing the actual fact checking. I mean, here's just an example with me. But that, but that's, Politico, but that, that is different though than if the person saying it believes it's wrong and they still say it. That's different from somebody being uh, bad at fact checking, right? I mean, th- th- legally there might be some overlap, but they are a distinction, right? Right, absolutely. I mean, here's a, here's an example. During the autonomous zone in Seattle, I had Politico, I had a couple of other these fact checking agencies saying Ari Hoffman doesn't know what he's talking about because he doesn't live inside the autonomous zone. I'm like, what reporter go? You know, lives where they're reporting? They go elsewhere for what they're doing. Sorry, your house isn't in the middle of it. And they just settled a 3.6 million dollar lawsuit to the businesses that were saying all the same things I was saying. I haven't seen any retractions for that yet. Unfortunately, it's just this is the mess out there. Anytime somebody tries to define misinformation, disinformation, it gets caught up in this whole mess. I don't think anybody should be blatantly lying. I don't think anybody should be pretending that their opinion is journalism. I think people should be honest about it. But unfortunately, we have primetime TV. And look at any network, look across it. It seems like every single one of them is designed to freak you out about something. It's just whatever their narrative is. You know, when I'm when I'm doing uh, my show, Rakeem, I, I do a bunch of things like, hey, I'm not sure about this, but this is what I think. Or, mm. you know, this is the fact I know. This is my opinion about that fact. Or even, you know, just kind of trying to lay the groundwork for a general premise that they can trust what I'm saying. And even admitting, obviously, quickly, if, if possible, you know, when I'm wrong about something. Um, it seems to me like, you know, I know that works for me, but for some reason, national television and many radio shows have not adopted that model. <laughs> they have adopted a model which is much more pandering to whatever they think the strongest sentiment of their audience is. That, to me, seems like the big danger here. Am I, am, I, am I wrong in thinking of it that way? No, I agree with you. Certainty sells. Absolutely, right? Like It hasn't rained all day in Washington, D.C., from what I can tell. But if I told you right now, it is raining, it is pouring, you'd say, no, no it isn't. And we'd be in an argument, and suddenly it'd be entertaining. And, you know, the point is that nighttime news has largely devolved into something where Americans after a very long day are not interested in learning about their country at all, but rather just want to be entertained or at least get a mixture of the two. Yeah, there there may be something to that that I can appreciate. Um, But I do think the point that you were making earlier is an important one, which is are people intentionally deceiving? Are they um, somehow immune to facts or unsusceptible to contradictory information? So, if you take the example that Ari was using of the vaccine mandate and whether or not it stopped the spread, surely what the person is thinking about is that we get vaccines all the time, right? The COVID vaccine wasn't the first one. Largely what we've been told is that vaccines prevent the spread of whatever virus we're trying to prevent. Seems that it would do the same in this context. Now, if Ari presents contradictory information and says, yeah, but it didn't this time, right? Okay, then someone who receives that information should consider it and place it alongside and perhaps even give um, their viewers or listeners information about that, right? Of the scientists who reviewed this, 95% think this, 5% think this, here's what the 5% think, here's why the 95% think something different. But the more we begin to introduce that balance and nuance and show that they're, that the truth is sometimes complicated and not always complete, the less entertaining we become. It becomes the BBC. Yeah. 
You know, it's, it's kind of funny. Uh, people who are in the news business, we love to uh, celebrate how good we are at challenging the, you know, the authority figures and the senators and the status quo and asking them the hard questions and, you know, being willing to irritate and ruffle feathers. Right. But then when it comes to our own audience, <laughs> you know, it's always unless you're just not paying attention, there's always a bit of that gut check. Am, am I willing to say the thing that I know 80 percent of my listeners are really going to think I'm wrong about? And am I willing to advocate for that and say that in a way that I know is going to upset them? But I mean, isn't that the job? The job can't just be to brag on how you challenge those folks over there. You got to challenge anybody. And sometimes truth to power is the people who are listening and reading. They're the power. Right, Ari? Absolutely. I mean, there's a thing that happens every time on my show where I say I'm supporting Ron DeSantis if he decides to run for president, not Donald Trump. My phone lines go nuts. My text line goes nuts. My emails blow up with all the diehard Trumpers who go, what do you mean you're not supporting him? You've written articles supporting him. I'll go, yeah, if he's the nominee, I may support him. But right now, this is a different guy I'm looking at who I have more faith in winning the election. And then sometimes I'll call out like, for example, here's one that's in the news right now. The January 6th riot for a second. I have condemned it. I have called it out. And at the same time, two things can be true at one time. It can be true that there was this awful, terrible riot going on at the front entrance that the entire country saw. It can also be true that some people who are on the backside of the property or a different entrance were led in by Capitol Police officers. One being true does not discount the other. If you want a full picture of what happened that day, you have to look at everything that happened that day. Does one diminish the other? No, absolutely not. But why are people so afraid of seeing everything that happened that day? We saw the tear gas being used. We saw the people breaking through the windows. We saw all that insanity. I condemned it at the time. I condemned it now. But yesterday when I said, hey, you know what? That was still happening. Some people were yelling at me about that because, oh, Tucker Carlson said this. I'm like, yes, and that's a valid point, some of the points he made. But at the same time, it doesn't diminish from this. All of these things can be true at one time. And we have a responsibility to our audiences to say, here's all the facts we have. Here's everything we know. And when we get more things, here's what we've learned since then. Many times on my show, I've said, I was wrong about this. Here's the updated information. When you're on the radio three hours a day, every single day of the week, you're going to say some things that you didn't mean to be wrong, that you get fact check on or more news comes out later. And we have the responsibility, if we're going to be the ones who are the voice for a lot of these people that they're getting their news from, to be responsible about that. All I heard you say was that you're wrong all the time, Ari. So that's what I, <laughs> that's my takeaway here. Rakeem, how much of an obligation do you think people have to tell the truth that's going to offend the people that are likely to hear you, watch you, read you. And you know that in advance. I mean, that seems to me like a pretty high requirement. Yeah. I wouldn't see why, look, if you're given a pedestal in our society to speak the truth, to provide valuable information to one's fellow citizens, sometimes that information will be upsetting to folks and that should be okay. I think one of the places where I disagree with Ari though, in the January 6th description is that we also occupy positions where people expect us to um, rank the facts, so to speak, which is to say there are a variety of things that are always true at any one particular moment. The invocation of any particular fact suggests its importance and so and usually towards some argument. And so I think, though, he says, on the one hand, you've got people who are rioting, who he's condemned. But on the other hand, people were let in by Capitol Police. It begs the question, well, what does that mean exactly about how we understand the situation? I'm not sure what he means by it is my honest point. But I think that everyone not only has an obligation to tell the truth with regard to uh, the information they provide, but also to have some integrity about how they are telling the truth, which is to say, you know, if someone were, I don't know, a car was speeding down the road, right? Well, the speed might be relevant. The color of the car might be relevant. Who was driving the car might be relevant, right? The fact that it had rims may or may not be relevant. The fact that it was... Um, Know, raining outside. There could be any number of other facts around that as we're trying to figure out what this vehicle was, who was in it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but every time you present a new fact, the way any of our minds work is we try to assimilate that fact into the overall fact pattern to determine whether or not it makes sense. And at least my legal training always taught us that like some facts, though true facts, are not actually relevant to helping you determine the outcome. And so that's where I'm wrestling a little bit with Ari's description. I'm just not sure what the fact that the Capitol Police let some people in tells me about the entire riot. Let me ask you this, Rakim, just real fast. And yeah. then here's the thing. 
mostly peaceful protests, right? I live in Seattle. I watch these things. And when they were calling them mostly peaceful protests and I see buildings on fire, I saw that Chiron over on CNN were fiery, but mostly peaceful protests. Mm -hmm. Would you agree that, you know, you look at something like that and you go, doesn't matter if it was mostly peaceful and there was a thousand people marching, but a hundred people did light the city on fire. Right. Are those relevant facts? Yeah, I would think that was a relevant fact. Okay, so there. I think we're not that far apart on this, actually. Always something I like to celebrate when we find one of those. Hey, last quick question on this topic before we move on. The Fox has made the decision in the wake of the filing and the lawsuit and the revelations that they're basically not going to talk about this on the air. As a news organization, they're not going to cover this story in which they are a major player. Now, the official explanation is, this is a legal proceeding. We don't want to put ourselves in legal jeopardy by having people on the air say things that might compromise our legal position. At least one person has put up a stink and said, I'm being told not to talk about this. I think that's wrong, but I work for the company, right? To what degree does a news organization have an obligation to report on their own dirt, you know, their own crud that they're mixed up in the middle of? I, I tend to find post, you know, say what you will about them. They'd report on their own mistakes in that same way. Rakeem, what do you think is the obligation there? You know, I, maybe I have a different instinct about that. I tend to think you don't have an obligation to report on yourself, on yourself. not because um, you might not have good, interesting things to provide. But, for example, during the Andrew Cuomo controversy, we expected that Chris Cuomo would not be a commentator on Andrew Cuomo. If there's an obvious conflict of interest that might lead the viewer to suspect that the information they're being provided about the conflict is unlikely to be true, then I don't see why there would be great value in, in doing so. Maybe you have the right to, that's sort of separate, you know, why Fox is doing it and what its particular um, configurations are or um, strategies are for its own litigation. But uh, I would much rather have other news organizations <laughs> reporting on Fox. <laughs> well, the, what, my thought about that, just to push back a little is, uh, we know for a fact that people tend to be very devoted to maybe one or two channels, you know, and of course, New York Times comes out with this article last week about how the conservative universe isn't even reporting on this. I think they were wrong in some of their claims. But OK, if you watch Fox exclusively, you don't even know this story. Not really. Right. Uh, pretty major story. Is there some obligation at least to make people aware that this is out there and it affects you and it's relevant, even if you don't dwell on it a lot. Okay. Uh, at least so your, you know, your viewers know, Oh, that's a real thing. They're not just making that up over at some extreme liberal site that they want to discount or marginalize. No, that's a very good point. I mean, given the levels of media isolation, Fox might have an obligation to its viewers in some ways to say, well, this is what we're going through, provide a disclaimer. I can see the argument in that. I guess I was just taking maybe a slightly more extreme point, which is there are so many media sources that could be reporting on this that why would anyone have the obligation to do so? But yeah, if truly uh, all the conservative media sites, Fox would seem to be a, a massive one, but just right. one. And others would be getting information from Ari and still others who are saying, you know, this is not accurate or this is what's happening in this context. So they're not talking about themselves uh, and we ought to be interrogating it. Clearly, Tucker Carlson was concerned about what other news sources. Might oh, say yeah. About Fox, oh, yeah. I suspect they might <laughs> they might be commenting now. Uh, Ari, uh, final thought on the subject. Do you think Fox has an obligation to cover this uh, to at least some degree? As much of an obligation as CNN did to cover Nicholas Sandsman's lawsuit, but you know, I didn't hear much about that one either. Fair, I mean, I mean very. The problem fair, is sure. when you have these lawsuits. So, legal thing: if you have hosts that are just stating their opinion, now that can be used in court. So, when it's a legal thing, yeah, but when you're the center of a story, it becomes a real conflict here, where you have the legal aspect, you have your audience aspect. You don't want your audience to leave you. You're not going to say, "Oh, well, we got this one wrong necessarily," and then chase away your audience. Hey, run on over to these guys, especially in such a competitive market. While I don't like it, I understand it, and I understand why they're doing it. You know, for me, when I make a mistake on air, what I do is I made a mistake. Let me correct it. Okay, now we move on, and here's the next topic. You know, I don't keep going. Oh, and I made the mistake and I did it again and I did it again. Yes, with a news organization, you kind of hope you're going to see more out of it, but they all have the things that they cover and that they don't cover. I mean, there's stories here in Washington. Here's one just right off the top of my head. I won't go too long on this, but an eight-year-old girl and a six-year-old boy were killed because Washington Democrats put in a law that police cannot pursue criminals anymore. And because they couldn't pursue this one guy who was driving over 111 miles an hour, they stopped the pursuit. An hour later, later, he plowed into this car and killed this family. It's not being covered in our local media. 
It's not being covered at all. They're not even talking about it. It's being discussed on the floor of the state house. They're not even discussing it because so many of these outlets said they promoted and they supported this reform. So they're not doing that either because then they have to admit they were wrong. Unfortunately, it just seems to be the way things work in this industry. Yeah, no, that's that's sad to hear about that. I mean, the particular the, the case itself, but, you know, the fact that they're not willing to talk about it. Uh, yeah, no, it, it, it's one thing my, you know, my wife, you know how we all have uh, people in our lives who give us good advice. My wife actually made a comment. We were talking about this with Fox the other day, and she said, well, maybe once the case has been, dis, you know, uh, disposed, maybe once they have a, a resolution, that's when Fox should report on it, because then it's a done thing and they can't, you know, obviously suffer uh, harm after that. We're going to take a quick break here on the debate. When we come back, is it safe to have students at a Baptist university teaching students teaching in the classroom at an elementary school where they style themselves as being very favorable to LGBTQ students? We'll talk about it when we return on the debate. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to the debate. I'm Andrew Tallman, joined today by Rakeem Brooks and Ari Hoffman. Uh, Washington Elementary School District in Arizona, it's Phoenix Glendale, if you know the region at all, recently voted 5-0 to sever ties after five years with Arizona Christian University. It's gone through some name changes over the years, but it's a conservative Baptist university that views its mission as biblically oriented, uh, Christ-centric, evangelical, and you know that's the most important thing to them. So teaching students from this school would go do their internship, so to speak, or their teaching hours at the elementary school. And some of them would wind up getting hired numerous students over the years. Now you have a school board uh, led by somebody who self describes as, you know, LGBTQ. And uh, she gave a long speech in which she said, look, their values don't align with the values that we have in our classroom. Therefore we shouldn't have their teaching students in our schools it's not compatible. It's not safe for our LGBTQ kids. Therefore, they severed the relationship unanimously on a vote recently. Rakeem, what do you think? I understand where that person was coming from. I understand the concerns, but it feels as though it might have been a little too fast. Uh, frankly, I've tried to dig into the story a little bit and really understand it, its contours and nuances. You know, if they had been teaching there for five years, um, and for the most part, there there had been no incident, uh, which is to say that none of the people who were teaching had somehow proven hostile to any of the students who might have been expressing their sexuality in some way that uh, contravened what those teachers believed and sincerely held moral beliefs. I'm not sure why there would be such a conflict. Clearly, they were trying to prevent that interaction from happening at some point. Uh, but I, it raises the question more generally whether or not the experience of being around children or people who are LGBTQ might not also prove itself to be transformative for those teachers. I mean, one of the central arguments of the LGBTQ movement started with Harvey Milk was like, if they know one of us, they know two of us, that our families knowing who we are and us coming out provides an army of people who will defend our rights. Uh, and so I'm just a little curious about this particular choice, um, but maybe there's more information to be shared about how those teachers have interacted with the students of which they're unfamiliar. Ari, your thoughts of the decision uh, about the decision by the Arizona School Board? I mean, for me, this gets a little personal, a little complicated. I went to a very Orthodox Jewish college. I went to very Orthodox Jewish day schools, and they're all having these things going on right now where they're saying, wait a minute, the LGBTQ thing is becoming a thing. How tolerant are we going to be? How not tolerant are we going to be? 
Nobody's saying, hey, we want you to change your lifestyle. That's not what's going on here. But at the same time, over the course of our tradition, over the course of Bible study, you may hear things that trigger you if you are in that community. You may hear things you disagree with. The question is, is anybody here being vindictive? Is anybody here taking anything out on the students? Is anything like that going on? And it doesn't seem like that's the case. It may just see that there's a difference of opinion. And then you got a more complicated thing with this. Well, where does freedom of religion come into all this? And now you've got lawsuits, like, for example, against my alma mater, Yeshiva University, where they want to have an LGBTQ club on campus. And I ask myself, why would you want to have that at this school? When you know how this school feels, why are you going that direction? Not everybody needs to necessarily go there. So these are the kind of things that we're having this internal discussion here. And thank God we have the First Amendment, but there's going to be a lot of things going on back and forth about religion in the classroom. And as I translate the First Amendment, I'm sure Rakim disagrees with me wholeheartedly on this one. But when I see no law regarding established religion, that means you can't make a law regarding established religion. It doesn't mean you ban things from the classroom because banning it is making a law regarding that. So I think this thing, I don't think we're going to settle this today. I really don't. And reading the story, I mean, I think there's some more things here that we're not seeing just in the reporting. You know, one of the uh, one of the sort of basic facts in the case that I found fascinating is uh, Arizona Christian says that there's been about 100 of their student teachers that have uh, been, you know, been in the classroom at this particular school district over the last five years, 25 of whom go on to be hired. And, you know, obviously everybody has a teacher shortage. I mean, everybody has an everything shortage, but we have a teacher shortage. And as Rakeem pointed out, as far as I know, there's been no event. You know, there hasn't been the, the, the speech again given by this one particular school board member was all about the ideology. They expressed this ideology that appears to be incompatible with what we want for our school district and our kids. Therefore, we can't take this risk of putting them in jeopardy. Um Rakeem, I, I, you know, when I read this uh, and, you know, as, as a conservative Christian myself, it read to me like the school board was saying, you want to be a teacher, you can't be a Baptist. You know, like pretty much across the board, committed conservative religionists believe that, you know, especially if they're traditional moralists, they believe in a certain set of values and they tend to believe that those values apply to everybody. And to some degree, there should be evangelism. Most of us know better than to uh, be proselytizing a six-year-old in the classroom. <laughs> you know, that's kind of the law, right? Um, but the idea that you would take an entire category of people on the basis of a belief expressed in the school's doctrines that they agreed to, that seems extreme to me. I mean, that seems like an establishment of anti-religion. Am I, do you think I'm overreading this? I think you're overreading it only to the extent that if the values that the person shares proves to create a hostile environment, because as you say, they share those values in some way. So let, imagine, for example, in the school, there are children whose parents are uh, gay and the uh, teacher, for whatever reason, offers an opinion about that, whatever the opinion might be. They ought not to be together. They ought not to have been able to adopt you, et cetera, et cetera. All of those things would obviously create a hostile learning environment for that child, and that person shouldn't be allowed to teach there. What I'm struggling with is how the expression of the value itself necessarily means that the person will be treated poorly. Surely all of us, you know, I was thinking about um, when I served in government for a period of time, you take an oath of office, right? You pledge allegiance to the United States and you swear to protect and defend the Constitution. It doesn't mean you stand for everything that the country stands for at any particular moment, even though you sort of signed up for this alleged bill of particulars. And so it that's what I mean by it feels a little fast to me to have moved to that place, particularly when it seems at least 25 um, or so uh, teachers a year were coming out of this program and serving in productive roles for the students as a whole. Um, but maybe to Ari's broader point about whether or not, you know, how the First Amendment works and whether or not you can ban the teaching of religion in public spaces and so forth. I don't think that we should ever be showing hostility to religion in general, to one's practice of their religion. I think the problem becomes when those teachings become the basis upon which someone is educated. And so if the student teachers were bringing their values into the classroom and attempting, as you said, Andrew, to proselytize in some way because that was part of the oath that they took, then I think it would be it would be reasonable for the school board to ban their participation. I don't think anyone should be proselytizing their values um, in religious terms inside of secular institutions. If somebody tried to challenge this, Ari, on the basis that it was religious discrimination, that essentially they were, you know, establishing an anti-Baptist or an anti-religious 
requirement uh, almost at the school. You think that case would win? I don't know. <laughs> I don't <laughs> pretend to be a lawyer. Yes. I, all I, 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 look, See how I, I asked you and not Rakeem? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did like that point. Um, I'm the only one in my family who's not a lawyer, actually. In fact, my brother's a lawyer. My sister married a lawyer. My father's a lawyer. My grandfather was a lawyer. So from the my black sheep, le- the talk show host. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This was way better for me. My father told me not to become a lawyer. Not that I wasn't good at it, but he said, you, you won't like it. Uh, for me, it's like, I have no idea. I mean, unfortunately, we look at our judiciary these days. And it depends which court they get. It depends which level they get. Then you get up to the Supreme Court, and we pretty much know how that's going to go. And under if certain judges get replaced by a different president, we know how that's going to go. So it's just right now with terms of the local courts, I just don't know. I see so much craziness around here that I think is an open shut case that I go, oh, my God, how can you rule the other way? But, yeah, I wish I could give you a better answer than I don't know. You know, one of the other things that kind of caught my attention on this case is I started thinking to myself, as you try to do, right, um, how do I think about it, like from the school board members point of view? And I think we're I would imagine we all agree, but feel free to disagree. That's why we have the debate. There's got to be some groups participation in which would disqualify you from teaching seven year olds. I mean, if you're in the clan, you know, and we find out, (laughs) you know, we're not we're not going to have you teaching a seven year old. Uh, if you're, uh, you know, like, I guess a branch Davidian, you know, if you, I mean, there's certain groups that participation in that group would disqualify you from being a public educating, uh, you know, in the K through six level. I just, I guess I just was caught so off guard by somebody thinking that being a Baptist was that group. You know, that's the one that caught me by surprise. Um, I mean, am I, I'm, I'm right on that, that there are some groups we would say, no, period. You're a member, you're out, right? Yeah, for sure. I was just going to add, you know, the line there seems to be that the group with which you're affiliated has a commitment to violence of some kind. We would almost always exclude people of that kind. And what we're therefore threading the needle on is that clearly the school board member believes that uh, the commitment to this set of faith values inclines you towards a particular kind of violence towards um, LGBTQ communities. And that's the place where I think they've moved too quickly. Of course, there are Christian communities that do uh, support violence against LGBT communities. There are non-Christian communities that support violence against LGBT communities, and we go with any number of religions. So it just doesn't seem to me that this is a obvious basis upon which to to exclude um, these teachers, Uh, in particular because I think we also, this may be my unpopular statement as a progressive, but it is the case that there are religious values that we all embrace, actually, that came from various religious traditions that have been widely circulated. Yesterday or the last two days, I've been in um, in these sort of retreats and we started off with these kind of calming rituals. Right. I am quite confident that that came from some religious basis and was meant to put me in a state of mind to allow me to do my work more effectively. So religion itself is not the reason to ban something, nor is a a commitment to a particular way of life. There are things that can be incorporated productively in Western society, and that's why it's good that we are a pluralistic society. So I just worry that as as impassioned as this person may have been, um, we didn't have really enough facts to say that these students ought to, these student teachers ought to have been banned based on their religion alone. And, and by the way, f- first of all, I'm so glad you explained why you do seem very calm today. So now we've learned the backstory. <laughs> it was so I'm... good. I just didn't expect it. I never do things like that. I'm in DC. It was, this it was is, a New Yorker. This a New is, Yorker brought This is me. even keeled Rakeem. I like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> you know, and um, had there been kind of to go back to one of your early comments, had there been an incident you know, where student X had really crossed some lines with kids in the classroom and they were crying and upset. And you asked him, he said, well, this is what we're taught at Arizona Christian. You know, I mean, I could see a scenario in which even I would start to raise questions maybe, but absent a case like that, you know, that's, that's kind of where I'm coming at it. Ari, final thoughts on the subject? Rock, he was taking all the wind out of my sails on this. Like, you know, I was I was expecting a knockdown, drag out fight on this, and he's like, "We're going too quickly. It's too soon. There wasn't a reason for this." So I'm like, Rakim, you want to come on my show anytime? Man? You know, always happy to have you back up my points. You know, you're making you're doing a good job making them for me. No, for me, unfortunately, it just seems like there's a lot of gut reactions to a lot of things these days. People don't like it because it's religious, or people don't like it because it's political, or people don't like it because they think it's liberal, or they think it's conservative. And you know what? Censoring people from the conversation or saying, no, we don't want you just because of your ideology or something, that's how we get a more divided country. 
And so, I mean, I got plenty of friends from all different kinds of religions. And I know that's the stupidest thing to say when you're saying you're trying to make a point. Oh, I got friends who are this. I got <laughs> friends who are that. But the reason we're friends is because we discuss this kind of stuff. We talk about this kind of stuff. I'm a huge Mets fan. Some of my best friends are Yankee fans. You know, we talk about that all the time, too. So I think that excluding religion or any perspective from the conversation is a thing. I mean, I'm not talking about the groups that you were talking about, Andrew. Those, of course, you know, I think we can all agree on that. But yeah, I just I'm trying to understand what was the react what was this in reaction to? Did something happen or was it just, hey, we don't like your ideology? And that's what concerns me about the story. My, my takeaway so far from this show is that Ari makes a lot of mistakes every day on his show for three hours. <laughs> and Mets fans should not be teaching K through six in the public school. So I appreciate the clarity there, Ari. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Sarah Huckabee Sanders is looking at whether she's going to sign a law that would allow children under the age of 16 to work in the state of Arkansas and to basically work with parental permission and not have to ask the state and go through a set of hoops in order to do it. We'll discuss it next on The Debate. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back on the debate. Good to have you with us today. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, governor of Arkansas, is looking at HB 1410. It has now been passed by both chambers, headed to her desk that would allow kids down to possibly the age of nine to be hired and work. And basically right now you have to ask permission from the state. Nobody under 16. Uh, there's a couple of you know hurdles. That law is being done away with. And this would allow, you know, the 14 or the 15 year old, I think is the most common version of this, would be able to get a summer job or perhaps maybe a job during the school year. Lots to be said on both sides. Let's uh, give you first pass at it, Rakeem. What do you think? Should kids, if their parents consent, be allowed to work at younger ages more easily, which is kind of what this bill is trying to accomplish. I'm not sure that's what the bill is trying to accomplish. Sorry. Oh, to fair. Right, no, that's right fair. Go that. ahead. So, yeah. I tried to dig into this one too. And this is on the other side, just seemed bizarre. I, I looked at the basic requirements of it. It seemed that the child had to certify their age. They had to certify that their parent would allow them to work and a few other small requirements. And I just could not figure out what the big deal was here. It seemed as though it might be a helpful thing for, I know this scares the right, some state authority to say, you know, really, this kid seems to be exceeding the number of hours that they might be required, that they might be allowed to work. Well, why might this be a concern? You know, I grew up pretty poor. It might have been the case that I wanted to work more at age 14, 15, and 16 than I really should have in terms of balancing my uh, scholastic requirements. And so maybe it's okay for there to be someone to just say, no, employer, not to the parent, not to the child. Employer, you will be penalized if the child exceeds the number of hours that they're supposed to work because we find there to be overall detriments. And I'll just give a quick example, if I might. I wish there had been something like this at the university that I attended because there were several kids who were like me, who were first generation, came to our university. And I mean, they worked their butts off just trying to make it through the school so much so that their grades suffered and they require, and in some cases are required to leave school for periods of time because no one was watching. No one was saying this balance isn't going to be struck right. The purpose for you being here is your education. The purpose in those early years of life is to ensure that you graduate high school and we just have to place a limit on this. Uh, so I, I found this one uh, overreach. It was kind of like the libertarian impulse to say, don't let the state get between me and my kids and what we need to be doing. And sometimes I have that impulse. Sorry, I don't know what voice that was, who I was mimicking, but sometimes I have that impulse. And yet here I was just thinking like, it just seems like a generic requirement that might be good for everybody. 
your tranquility mantra might be wearing off. We might be coming up the uh, the, the end <laughs> yeah, of the, the end of the effects. <laughs> uh, Ari, your thoughts? I wonder if this had to do with the nonprofit community. I wonder if that's where this is rooted in. And let me explain. I know that at synagogues, churches, everything across the country, you got a lot of kids that at very, very young ages are doing the babysitting for other people's kids so they can be in services while they're going on or in the Sunday school or whatever the case may be. I mean, I know we do it at our synagogue, and I know that a lot of times when I tell these kids, okay, this is your shift once every two weeks or whatever the case may be, they keep showing up. And they don't stop showing up. And then they're like, well, why haven't you paid me? And I'm like, well, you're not working this week. But I wonder if there's a lot of nonprofits that are asking for this kind of thing because they want to hire younger kids because they can't get the older kids because the younger kids, the older kids, excuse me, think they're entitled to a corner office at, you know, JP Morgan. The older kids these days are naming their own terms for prices. And I wonder if this has something to do with the fact that the younger kids still haven't been jaded by that yet and are looking for something else. I wonder if that is actually at the root of this. I think we all agree we don't want kids failing out of school. I think we can all agree we don't want kids being overworked in a sweatshop or, God forbid, or being overworked by some caterer like I was as a kid. I mean, the amount of hours I worked making meatballs for Passover, holy cow. But I just, this kind of stuff... I wonder if it has something to do with the faith-based community asking for more help, especially with regard to their daycare programs. I wonder if it actually traces back to that. Yeah, I was trying to think in my own mind. That's a great question of how much this might go to the nonprofits. And I was just thinking, like, what sort of jobs is a 14-year-old going to be able to do to get hired on? Because I don't know about you guys, but, you know, and I'm actually kind of curious about this. When I was a kid, uh, you know, mowing lawns, right, babysitting, um, you know, sometimes we'd make stuff and then sell it. And, you know, certainly if you're in the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts, uh, they will work you to death selling stuff door to door. At least they used to. Um, so, I mean, I, I had lots of occupations before I was ever employed by anybody, including the, you know, sometimes the off the books pay to go work for the summer, at your dad's warehouse and or your, your, you know, your friend's dad's warehouse and that kind of stuff. Did you guys both work? I'll start with you, Rakeem. Did you work as a kid before you were 16? Yeah, for sure. I worked, um, they had a summer youth program, uh, in New York. So my first job, I remember I stood on this very, very long line to get, you know, literally, I mean, all these processes make sense to me. I'm a New Yorker. So it's kind of like the government's always in your business. And it was all right, actually. It turned out that I lined up on this line. I got a job for the summer. I wish that there were more jobs available for people, people who are 14 yeah. uh, in New York City. Um, so, yeah, I did. Yeah. And the best part about a lot of those jobs is uh, you didn't have to pay any taxes. Not that we're advocating for that, but just an observation. <laughs> Just I an paid observation. Taxes. I remember that taxes came out of my check. Honest uh, Rakeem, know. fair enough. Statute of limits, <laughs> uh, statute of limitations. Ari, uh, did you work as a kid? Yeah, I want to know who that FICA guy was who was stealing all my money. <laughs> I want to know that all. He's the got time. his I fingers deep in your fair. pocket. Yeah, no, I mean, I started babysitting when I was like 12 or something like that. I was doing that kind of stuff. And then, I mean, I don't know who these parents were that trusted a 12-year-old boy to watch their children while they're out for the night. But then, I mean, I was working for catering companies. I was, you name it. I think I've been working since maybe as young as 10, various jobs, but especially a lot of nonprofit work, which is why my brain went to, I wonder if this is where this whole thing's coming from. Because it's common. And I grew up in New York also. I live in Seattle now. And it's across the country I've seen this kind of stuff going on. So, yeah, I mean, I, I know my kids. My kids want to work for a lot of these kind of jobs because they just want the extra cash to buy whatever it is on the Xbox. So, yeah, I really do think it has something to do with the nonprofit world. And, and you know, my thought about this is, you know, uh, no, one of the concerns about this law is the impact on their education. Of course, they're supposed to be full time students. And if they're working too much, then they're not getting sleep. They're not getting, dist- you know, they might not be engaging in cur- extracurriculars that are valuable. All, the whole argument. But look, work is education, too. And I, if there's any defect we have in our society today, it seems like there's not enough kids doing work of some kind, even if it is just the mowing of the lawns or babysitting kind of work. That's educational. That teaches responsibility and thrift and, you know, all of the things that come with that. Um, I, I wonder if the system isn't, it just isn't broken. You know, we have rules right now that if you're under 16, you don't work. But everybody does. They just don't work at Burger King. You know, <laughs> they don't work for an employer in that sense, but they still find work if they want it and they make some money and they learn some things. And it's sort of an everybody wins. Um, so final thoughts for Keem, uh, you, you this this bothered you. I'm not, I'm not sure where your takeaway is here. You, well, My takeaway was this was a helpful barrier to entry and a kind of regulatory requirement. I was just looking 
and I'm trying, I don't, I don't want to misquote back to our point about truth, but it looks like the state law, quote, currently prohibits children under 16 from working more than eight hours a day, more than six days a week, and more than 48 hours per week. What child should be working anywhere <laughs> close to any day. of that? <laughs> yeah. So if that's the like broad standard under which someone operates and all you have to do, go do is get this piece of paper, just kind of clarifying, hey, you sure you want your child to be working? up to 48 hours a week, please sign this note, you know, to the government. I mean, I I think there's a lot going on here that doesn't really make make sense to me. But to your point, Andrew, yes, of course, work is education. I believe that entirely. But as a person who's come from a, like generations of manual laborers, I'm sort of like, no, we need to really make sure that people have the opportunity to get the best possible education that they can, that they can be focused there and potentially attend to the concerns that they're feeling in their homes and in their lives if they don't have enough money to feel like ends meet while they're being educated, because that's what perpetuates the cycle of poverty. This distinction met plenty of my friends before I got to uh, college, became distracted in high school because they just wanted to have some cash in their pocket to be able to hang out and do things with their friends. And I just think it's so corrosive, ultimately, of the American dream to like push kids into work, not for the there's, of course, responsibility and the things that you're describing being built in. But the proper balance has to be struck. And Arkansas seems to be all headed in the wrong direction entirely. So Rakeem hates the American dream. Ari, last thoughts. (laughs) I also think of farming, right? Like what what farmers kids don't work, no matter what the Arkansas law officially says. Andrew Carnegie, nobody's. Starting on the dock, building a billion dollar business today. Like, that does not happen. That's not today's American dream. Today's tell, American that to Elon, dream. tell that to Elon Musk, Rakim. I mean, Fair look enough. at his story for a minute there, okay? We may not love him, but, you know, you got to look at his story. It actually is kind of like that. Yeah. But, yeah, no, I mean, look, at some point the parents come into play and you got to say, no, I'm not letting my kid do that. Unfortunately, there's too many parents out there these days that don't have those barriers and want their kids to be their best friends and like them and don't realize that sometimes you got to say no. But I don't think we're talking about hiring these kids for Burger King or Taco Time or something like that. I don't think this is what it's intended for. And if it is what it's intended for, that's a really sad state of our economy and the job situation right now that we can't get anybody for a lot of these jobs. And that's a whole nother conversation we have to have. Well, short-term jobs anyway, the robots and the AI will take care of that real soon. Uh, guys, really good conversation today. Thank you so much. Rakeem Brooks, uh, Ari Hoffman, as always, fabulous comments. I super appreciate it. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the debate. Being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. (laughs) It's like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The Parting Shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling, and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.